Pittsburgh is the poster child of showing why the Paris Agreement is good economics for the United States. And what we did today sets us back decades. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from The Bradcast, Democracy Now!, Quirks and Quarks, Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and The Green News Report. Yes, in fact, Donald Trump has just announced that the U.S. will will join Syria and Nicaragua as the only nations on the planet not a part of the uh, landmark Paris Climate Accord. And uh, by the way, for that matter, Nicaragua didn't join in uh, because they felt that the action was not strong enough. So really, it's just the U.S. and war-torn Syria who refused to partake in the agreement. President Trump announced he will withdraw the U.S. from participation in the climate accord, weakening global efforts to combat climate change and siding with so-called conservatives who argued that the landmark 2015 agreement was harming the economy. Um, We have, uh, well, in the White House uh, Rose Garden, this announcement today replete with a four-piece military band in celebration this afternoon. Yes, it was a very festive atmosphere. It was indeed. Donald Trump, in his lengthy and at times rambling speech, punctuated with, well, let's be kind for now and say highly debated economic numbers. (laughs) Which, Uh, of course, I don't have to get into this, but I can just call them lies because they're just outright lies. Well, he announced in any case, lies or otherwise, that he was pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord with hopes for a renegotiation that might somehow allow the U.S. to reenter the landmark pact or uh, or a completely different agreement after the uh, this after the US and the and the UN achieved the years long effort back in 2015 to bring together nearly 200 countries for the largest world agreement in history here was Donald Trump today in the White House rose garden in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. Thank you. But begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or in really entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out, but we will start to negotiate and we will see if we can make a deal that's fair. And if we can, that's great. And if we can't, that's fine. As president, I can put no other consideration before the well-being of American citizens. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages 
the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers who I love and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. Thus, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. Compliance with the terms of the Paris Accord and the onerous energy restrictions that is placed on the United States could cost America as much as 2.7 million lost jobs by 2025, according to the National Economic Research Associates. This includes 440,000 fewer manufacturing jobs, not what we need. Believe me, this is not what we need. The cost to the economy at this time would be close to $3 trillion in lost GDP and 6.5 million industrial jobs, while households would have $7,000 less income and in many cases, much worse than that. Not only does this deal subject our citizens to harsh economic restrictions, it fails to live up to our environmental ideals. As someone who cares deeply about the environment, which I do, I cannot in good conscience support a deal that punishes the United States, which is what it does. The world's leader in environmental protection, while imposing no meaningful obligations on the world's leading polluters. That would be us. Yes. Staying in the agreement could also pose serious obstacles for the United States as we begin the process of unlocking the restrictions on America's abundant energy reserves, which we have started very strongly. It would once have been unthinkable that an international agreement could prevent the United States from conducting its own domestic economic affairs. But this is the new reality we face if we do not leave the agreement or if we do not negotiate a far better deal. Patently false. (laughs) As president... I have one obligation, and that obligation is to the American people. The Paris Accord would undermine our economy, hamstring our workers, weaken our sovereignty, impose unacceptable legal risk, and put us at a permanent disadvantage to the other countries of the world. It is time to exit the Paris Accord. Also patently and untrue. time to pursue a new deal that protects the environment, our companies, our citizens, and our country. It is time to put Youngstown, Ohio, Detroit, Michigan, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, along with many, many other locations within our great country, before Paris, France. 
It is time to make America great again. Thank you. Thank you. That was Donald Trump in the White House Rose Garden today announcing he's uh, scramming from the uh, U.S., the historic U.S.-Paris agreement. Now, um, I'm sorry, not U.S., U.N.-Paris agreement, climate agreement. Trump offered uh, a list of grievances against the agreement uh, throughout. That was just one portion, uh, a couple of different portions from his speech that went on for about uh, it was about 25 or 30 minutes. Uh, what did he what he did not note uh, is the process that will be required to actually withdraw from the Paris Pact. It's unclear if that means he hasn't decided uh, yet how he's going to get out or he didn't just, you know, he just didn't want to let folks know that due to the structure of the Paris deal, it will take as long as four years, I think, to yes, pull fully out. as little. I mean, it, it cannot be any faster than four years. They, they have to, everyone has to stay in for three years, and then they have to give one year notice that before they get right. out. They have so, to stay in right. for three years from the time it came into force, which was last December. So three years from there is the first time a country can announce its intention to withdraw. As the Times, the New York Times described it, if they are correct, uh, Trump will stick to the process for withdrawal laid out in the Paris Agreement, which President Barack Obama joined and most of the world has already ratified, that could take four years to complete, meaning a final decision would be up to the American voters. Hello, knock, knock. Uh, Up to the American voters in the next presidential election. So that's something to consider. Also, those numbers that he mentioned uh, there, those are, if you were listening to yesterday's broadcast, those are Pretty much word for word, exactly what Ted Cruz said in his, if he even wrote this thing, in his op-ed that was posted at CNN.com yesterday. And we went through some of the details of that, uh, pointing out, uh, again, uh, Trump echoing those exact same numbers from the exact same group. From uh, NERA, the uh, National Economic Research Associates, claiming that the Paris Agreement would cost $3 trillion to the U.S. GDP by 2040. $3 trillion would uh, result in 6.5 million jobs lost, would cost each American household some $7,000 in income. All of that comes from the same group. The same right-wing group, National Economic Research Associates, he, he quoted them by name there, or NERA. Um, they are, as SourceWatch identified, a, a group that has worked on behalf of a coal industry front group in the past. And if you tie all the uh, the links together to this group, uh, connect all the dots, you find yourself back at uh, the guy who was the right-hand man for Rupert Murdoch, the CEO of Fox News and News Corp and so forth. So it's this right wing group. These are frankly phony numbers that I don't think anyone else uh, agrees with other than Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and I guess Steve Bannon and the fossil fuel denial industry. But anybody else who's an actual independent economic analysis can see if you look at these independent analyses that these numbers were completely made up that Trump used today in his speech to justify getting out of the Paris Agreement. Of course, other than uh, the cost to the uh, the planet itself uh, by the world's top greenhouse gas emitters. And I know you were chomping at the bit there during that audio when he was talking about the top polluters. 
We're the top polluters. Well, yes, we're number two now as far as total global emissions on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. China has now surpassed us as the biggest emitter, but we are by far the biggest emitter historically. We are responsible for about a fifth of the warming that, and the fifth of the CO2 that has now been released into the atmosphere. The United States is by far the largest polluter. This was our responsibility to clean up our mess that we made. Other than that, uh, the great concern among uh, those people who actually know stuff and believe in science and stuff, the concern about the U.S. leaving is that it's going to encourage others to uh, to pull out as well. Uh, environmentalists naturally are uh, furious about this. Uh, Greenpeace uh, USA's executive director said this is disgraceful by withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement. The Trump administration has turned America from a global climate leader into a global climate deadbeat. Uh, but the good news so far around the world, as far as the globe is concerned, is that there seems to be no sign of, uh, of other nations being interested in leaving this pact, at least not the, uh, the world's greatest emitters, from China to India to uh, the EU to Russia, all seem to be recommitting themselves to staying in the pact. And I think it's quite notable to note that there is no one else pretty much in the entire world, not a government, not a non-governmental organization, not in business that actually sides with Trump on any of this. The only people that do are the folks that stand to lose, primarily the coal industry. President Donald Trump announced Thursday he'll withdraw the United States from the landmark Paris Climate Accord that was signed by nearly 200 nations in 2015 and heralded as a rare moment of international collaboration to avert imminent climate disaster. He spoke in the White House Rose Garden, surrounded by supporters. As of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. This includes ending the implementation of the nationally determined contribution and, very importantly, the Green Climate Fund, which is costing the United States a vast fortune. The United States is the world's second largest emitter of greenhouse gases. As part of the accord, it had committed to providing financial assistance for pollution controls in developing nations. By pulling out of the agreement, Trump stuck to his campaign promise of putting America first. The citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. It is time to put Youngstown, Ohio, Detroit, Michigan, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 
along with many, many other locations within our great country, before Paris, France. It is time to make America great again. In fact, the city of Pittsburgh has a climate action plan committing to boosting the use of renewable energy. And Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto, a Democrat, has been an outspoken supporter of the Paris Accord. He tweeted after Trump's announcement, quote, as the mayor of Pittsburgh, I can assure you we will follow the guidelines of the Paris Agreement for our people, our economy and our future. Unquote. The response from world leaders was similarly defiant. France joined Germany and Italy in issuing a joint statement expressing regret and rejecting Trump's claim he would renegotiate the deal. French President Emmanuel Macron also responded with a televised speech that marked the first time a French president has ever given a speech in English from the Elysee Palace. We will succeed because we are fully committed. Because wherever we live, whoever we are, we all share the same responsibility. Make our planet great again. Meanwhile, Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel pledged ongoing commitment to the Paris Climate Accord and said Trump's decision would not stop Germany from moving forward. Germany will support the Fiji Islands in preparing the next climate conference, and we will do that together with France. Yesterday, I spoke with the French President Emmanuel Macron about the Paris Agreement to the conference in November, which will go further on the path of climate control. Now, new diplomatic alliances appear to be forming in the wake of Trump's announcement, with Europe, India and China all pledging to uphold their end of the deal. Chinese Premier Li Qingchang joined with European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker at an EU-China summit in Brussels on Friday in a show of solidarity. The former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, said Trump's decision to turn the United States into a rogue state. Former Mexican President Vicente Fox tweeted, the United States has stopped being the leader of the free world. On Twitter, critics noted in 2009 the Trump family, including Donald Trump, took out a full-page ad in The New York Times urging international action on climate change. Following Trump's announcement, landmarks in cities around the world were lit up green in support of the Paris Climate Accord. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, the sock company that is committed to making the best socks in the history of feet and doing good with the proceeds. The company was started by Randy and Dave after learning that socks are the number one requested clothing item in homeless shelters. So for every pair of socks Bombas sells, they donate a pair to those in need. Now you may have heard of the buy one, give one business model before, but I think these guys are really doing it right. First off, they found a genuine problem that needed to be solved, and then they worked with the affected communities to find out how they could best help. Case in point, the socks they donate aren't the same ones that you can buy. They're actually better. They've been designed with reinforced seams for longer wear, darker colors to show less visible wear, and antimicrobial treatment to better withstand less frequent washing. Now, when they got started, as the story goes, Dave promised Randy he'd get a Bombas logo tattoo when they donated a million pairs of socks. He thought it would take him 10 years. But 
it only took two and a half, and now Dave has a Bombas tattoo and a great story to tell about it. So to support their mission and get yourself the best socks in the history of feet, visit bombas.com slash left today, and you'll get an additional 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash left for 20% off. Bombas.com slash left. It's been seven days without a word. I have to keep you in Paris on my mind. I have to keep you in Paris on my mind. Donald Trump has a confusing history on climate change. Up until 2009, he was known to occasionally support actions against greenhouse gases. But since then, he's fully embraced climate change denialism among other things, famously calling it a hoax fostered by China. In this denialism, he is, of course, joined by many powerful Republican politicians. In fact, just this past Tuesday, in preparation for his announcement, he met with his recently appointed Environmental Protection Agency Administrator, Scott Pruitt, a long-standing and vocal climate skeptic. In his Senate confirmation hearings, Pruitt stated, quote, over the past two decades, satellite data indicates there has been a leveling off of warming, end quote. This has been a consistent talking point among powerful climate change skeptics. For example, here's Senator Ted Cruz from about a year ago. I would note this chart on the right, which shows for the last 18 years that there's been no significant warming whatsoever. It's these claims that have led a team of scientists to publish an official rebuttal recently in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. Dr. Ben Santer was the lead author of that paper. He's a climate scientist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, but wants us to make it clear that today he's talking to us as a private citizen. Dr. Santer, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you, Bob. Now, I'm going to ask you about your thoughts on Trump's pulling out of the Paris Agreement. But first, why did you feel it necessary to write an official rebuttal to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and Senator Cruz's claims about the climate satellite data? In my opinion, when incorrect scientific statements are elevated to the level of formal congressional testimony, the scientific community has a responsibility to set the record straight. That's what we tried to do with Mr. Pruitt's claim. And that's also what we tried to do with the earlier claim from Senator Cruz that you mentioned. Where are they pulling out these numbers, like two decades and 18 years, to say there's been no significant warming? The satellite temperature record is 38 years long. It started in late 1978, goes through to the present. And it shows warming of roughly now two-tenths of a degree Celsius per decade. So a total of nearly 0.7 degrees Celsius over the full period of the satellite record. And superimposed on that overall warming trend are a lot of wiggles. And if you're a climate scientist, that's what you do. You study those wiggles. One of those wiggles is back in 1997-1998. It's uh, a warm spike associated with a big El Nino. Uh, on average, El Nino events, which are natural fluctuations in the climate system, tend to warm the planet. And that one was one of the biggest El Ninos of the 20th century. So this is classic cherry picking. If you go back 20 years from the present, you hit that warm spike in 1997 and 1998. And the name of the game, I'm sorry to use that word, but that's actually what it is, is to choose 
a high point for the starting point of your trend, march forward in time 20 years and argue, well, there's been little change over this one artfully selected period. Even the last 20 years, even if you do that artful selection, there's still significant warming over the last 20-year period. And indeed, if you look at any 20-year period in the 38-year satellite record, pretty much all of them show that there's been significant warming. And that's one of the things that our paper shows. Well, has there been any period of leveling off or a reduction in warming that you could tell? Well, there are natural decade-to-decade changes in warming rate. They're not a scientific surprise. They're expected behavior. Uh, There are internal fluctuations in the climate system, things like El Ninos and La Ninas and other what climate scientists call modes of variability, uh, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, Interdecadal Pacific Oscillation, Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, a veritable zoo, if you will, of these natural fluctuations in climate. And they wax and they wane. And if you look at changes over short periods of record, you can uh, have trends that bounce around a little bit. There are also volcanic eruptions in the last 38 years in the satellite record. Big volcanic eruptions tend to cool the planet down. So if you look at the record, you see this background warming trend that I mentioned, seven-tenths of a degree Celsius over the full 38-year record. But you also see these ups and downs, uh, these, these wiggles. So it's expected, again, to see as you march from decade to decade. But the key thing is there's this inexorable warming signal in the background there over the full satellite record. And indeed, if you look at surface thermometer records, you see that inexorable warming signal too. So I'm, I'm trying to picture that. If we were to make a graph of the warming, it's not a nice, smooth, even curve. It's more like a sawtooth with ups and downs and peaks. And if you can choose one spot, you say, oh, look, it's going down here. <laughs> but you're not looking at the whole picture. If you back off and see the whole thing, it's actually still on the rise. That's right. So what I do and what my colleagues do is you look at the long view. You try and minimize, reduce the effects of year-to-year natural fluctuations in temperature by taking the long view. If you only look at a very short, artfully selected piece of the record, you don't see that. The noise kills you, <laughs> uh, and and you don't see the signal. So it's, it's silly. It's foolish. In the same way, you wouldn't look at the minute-by-minute record of day trading on the Dow Jones Industrial um, Index to make long-term inferences about changes in, in the Dow. You wouldn't do that. Well, given what you know as a climate scientist, how do you feel now that President Trump has pulled out of the Paris Agreement? I feel very sad. For the last nine months, I have argued in the public arena that a U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement would have serious negative consequences for this country and for our planet's climate system and for our ability to deal with the problem of human-caused climate change. So President Trump decided on on June the 1st, on uh, Thursday, to take the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement and let the rest of the world move forward on their own to deal with a problem that we largely created. The United States is responsible, historically speaking, for the lion's share of emissions of greenhouse gases. So... uh, 
I feel sad. I feel like we've missed an opportunity to be leaders, economic leaders, moral leaders, political leaders. Other countries will assume that leadership role. Canada will. Germany will. China will. We are turning the clock backward. Um, we're going to try and make the horse and buggy great again. That's not a smart business decision. You know, Mr. Trump prides himself on being a very shrewd businessman. The decision he took to remove the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement uh, will be the single worst business decision of his entire career. You know, in this, in, in this town and in the country, um, there are a lot of climate change skeptics. <laughs> I mean, where do you think that comes from? And why don't you think, even though, what is it, 99% of the climate scientists say that, you know, there is human cause of this, that the information and the science doesn't go through? Well, it, it seems to be unique to America, the, the climate skeptic. <laughs> um, as, as America's you know, got quite a few things unique at, about it at the moment, but climate change is one of, one of those things. And what, since now you have the Republicans running America, what we as business leaders are trying to do is to get the message across to those skeptics that even if you are a skeptic, um, it makes sense for America and the rest of the world to be powered by clean energy. I mean, I think even the most, the biggest climate skeptic must like to breathe, you know, their children to breathe clean air. So if we can power the world with the sun and by wind and by, you know, wonderful innovations and batteries, we're going to create hundreds of thousands, millions of jobs. We're going to have clean air and we'll have a fuel price, um, energy price globally, uh, which is about half what the current energy price is. And it'll be like that forever. So whereas if we don't invest in clean energy and get out there and create those millions of jobs, uh, fuel prices could be back up at $150 a barrel again. Uh, and in my opinion, we'll, we'll be polluting and damaging the, the world we live in as well. But can any of those goals that you, you just outlined be achieved if the United States is not an active partner in all of that? I mean, you're a big supporter of COP21. But, I mean, who knows where, where the United States government is right now and whether it's in or it's out. But if the United States officially gets out of the Paris Agreement, can any of these goals be reached? Well, the United States will be left way behind if it doesn't you know, keep the momentum going. And, I mean, China is, has got a clean energy revolution going on. I mean, millions of jobs have been created in, 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 in clean energy. Europe's got a clean energy revolution going on. South America's got a clean energy revolution going on. Unfortunately, in America, 95% um, of business leaders believe in climate change and they want to do something about it. Uh, most of the oil companies in America are investing heavily in technology that will, you know, will be the technology of the future when uh, the demand for oil disappears. So it's not going to be as easy, obviously, if you've got an administration that puts barriers up rather than encouraging it. You know, but I think 
you know, we just got to, we got to make it happen, and we've got to, you know, we've got to get to that carbon neutrality by 2050. One interesting thing that I learned yesterday was, you know, James Hansen um, came up with this brilliant idea um, a few years ago, and that was put a, put a tax on uh, on carbon, but give 100% of that tax back to people in their wage packets, uh, and equally, right, right across the board. And there's a group of Republicans, George Schultz and others, who've taken up that idea and are pushing the White House right now to accept it. And if you can create a differential between carbon and clean energy, then it just gives the clean energy uh, revolution, I think, a chance to move even quicker and, and even more jobs to be created. Well, what you just said actually works perfectly with this uh, question that just chimed in from Twitter, and that is when it comes to energy alternatives, do you think there's a place for nuclear energy? I think that I think there could be a place if, if you think that politically could ever ever get through. I think that um, it's unlikely that politically it, would, it will ever get through. And therefore, I think there's enough. I mean, the, the price of solar has come down so dramatically. The price of wind is coming down so dramatically. The price of batteries are coming down dramatically. And new innovations. I mean, the, you know, we're working with um, with Bill Gates and on a, on a breakthrough energy coalition, looking at new innovations. And you know, there are, there are so many exciting new innovations coming through. So I think some of these things have a better chance, I think, than nuclear. Although nuclear, arguably, mm. needs to be part of the equation. So um, you have something called the the Virgin Earth Challenge, and you started this in 2007, and it's a prize to a company. I want you to t talk about it because the point of this challenge is to come up with sustainable, scalable ways of removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. How many winners have you had? And if you could talk about one or some of the ideas that have come forward, have they gone to scale? So the prize was, I mean, prizes can uh, you know, longitude, latitude was only discovered because of a prize. I mean, there, 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 you know, prizes, I mean, the reason we're, one of the reasons we're going to space is because of the X Prize and Spaceship One. So um, prizes can have a fantastic catalyzing effect. We set up the Virgin Earth Prize, a $25 million prize, to see if anybody could come up with a way of extracting carbon out of the Earth's atmosphere. And we wanted them to be able to extract enough carbon that would you know, basically solve, solve the problem. So it was a, you know, it was a big task, but to, just to get people thinking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people have put their mind to it. We've got, we've got sort of 10, 10 organizations that we've been watching closely. No, nobody's come up with the, the winning formula yet. It took, took 75 years for, for the Longitude Prize to be won. Hopefully it'll take a lot, lot less. But in the meantime, th this prize is there in case everything else fails. And in the meantime, I think we just got to get on and do the nuts, the nuts and bolts of getting clean energy out there. There are many new technologies that um, are being developed. You know, we built a plane a few years ago called the Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer, 100% out of carbon fiber, to show Boeing and Airbus that carbon fiber should be part of the mix for aeroplanes. And when it successfully flew nonstop around the world with uh, Steve Fawcett piloting it. Um, Airbus came, you know, to where we built it, and as a result, I think, I mean, partly as a result of that and other things, you know, you've got um, the 787, you've got the A350 planes, which are 50-60% carbon fiber, and that means we're saving, you know, 20% fuel burn on them. We're now working with Manchester University and others on graphene. Graphene is 
um, maybe nine times lighter than carbon fiber. It's maybe nine times stronger, very roughly, than carbon fiber. You can't use it quite in quite the same way as carbon fiber um, because it's incredibly thin. So, but you can mix it in uh, into the mix, and so future planes, hopefully, you know, will then be another uh, big step forward and much lighter. So you've mentioned space, you've mentioned airlines, two subjects that I want to get to. But before I do that, I want to ask you about the assertion that we heard over and over and over again here in this country that coal is coming back, that we're going to bring the coal, jo- bring the coal jobs back. You firmly believe um, that renewable energy will, will win the day. Well, I mean, I can't think of anything more stupid than to talk about bringing coal back. I mean, they... they um, <laughs> Um, oh, actually, there are some things that are even more stupid. But anyway, um, but but I mean, the the I mean, first of all, digging coal is is a pretty horrible job. It kills a lot of people that um, you know work in coal mines. Most countries have got rid of that, you know, rid of that now. And those the people who were digging coal in coal mines are now putting solar panels on people's roofs. Um, uh, uh, you know, working on, you know, creating windmills and, uh, you know, a whole new revolution of new jobs is, is being created. America should be setting an example to other countries that are still reliant on coal, you know, to show that you don't have to be reliant on coal anymore. Fortunately, China is, you know, that was building a new coal power, power station every week and now moving rapidly towards uh, clean energy. And, and, you know, obviously they, they have you know, dirty energy in their face. I mean, you know, the coal, you, mm-hmm. you go into, uh, into Beijing and other places, um, you know, you can hardly see. Um, so they have another incentive as well. Would you say that China's leading the renewable energy revolution? Yeah. Or is that I mean, too... Oh, no, no. China is definitely leading, leading the clean energy revolution today. I mean, they've overtaken, they've already, I would say, overtaken America. And, and the reason that, you know, we are, you know, the clean energy revolution is really taking off now is the price they've managed to drive solar panels down. Um, I think on some of the more technical things like battery power, America is still ahead and Europe. As far as just replacing dirty energy, China, I would say, is moving the quickest. Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, who offers you a very simple proposition. They have high-quality razors that are less expensive than the gimmicky brand you're going to see in the stores, and they're delivered right to your home. It's a good deal right on its face, but you won't fully understand it until you try it on your face. <laughs> oh my god. Can you believe they didn't even ask me to say that? I, I, I came up with that myself. How embarrassing. Anyway... I recommend the executive razor that has a nice solid feel to combine with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for the smoothest shave ever. It's pretty clear why Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with four blades and a tube of their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only five bucks with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only $5. And not to worry, there are no hidden fees and no commitments. You can cancel anytime you like. And remember, you can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best.
President Trump revealing his decision to the country, to the world. We're out, he says, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. Okay, first, relax. No one for a second thought that you represented Paris. Partly because everyone knows Paris is represented by a smoking French bulldog who found the first course to be derivative and jejeune. But, but it is true. This week, Trump announced he would pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is hardly surprising. As a title, it is so off-brand for him, it might as well have been called the globalist cuck surrender or a light jog. Yet, yet pulling out of this is a huge deal. And to understand why, it helps to keep in mind one key number, and it's two degrees Celsius. Now, it's a bit of a shorthand, but the concern is that if we fail to limit temperature rise to that number, things get very bad and potentially irreversible. Scientists say we'll likely see longer droughts and more intense heat waves, which could cause big disruptions to the world's food supply. If we don't start with rapid emissions reductions and substantial emissions reductions, that will pass a danger point beyond which the consequences for many people and countries on Earth will simply become unacceptable and eventually disastrous. It's true, and we are not talking about a fictional apocalypse like the one in the movie 2012. We're talking about an actual global disaster like the movie 2012. <laughs> and the serious danger may actually be more imminent than you think. One estimate says that to have a good chance of avoiding the two-degree threshold, human emissions of CO2 should stay below this level in total. This is our so-called carbon budget, and by the end of last year, we were estimated to already be up to here. And if current emission trends continue, we would go above that critical line in about 20 years. And that is not a long time. 20 years ago, South Park was on TV, Foo Fighters were touring, and Paul Rudd looked like this. What I'm saying is, 20 years ago was basically now. So the Paris Agreement's central aim was to try and keep our global temperature rise below that two-degree threshold. And to do that, each signatory would set their own goals with a plan to reconvene every five years to ideally set more ambitious targets. And look, it was not perfect. Some critics at the time felt that it did not go far enough. But the key achievement was for the very first time getting virtually the entire world, including China and India, to commit to taking action. It was a historic moment and it was celebrated like this. The moment the world agreed to tackle climate change. And so the Paris Agreement was born and emotions spilled over. So much so that Lawrence Fabius banged the gavel again. So, I have been asked to bang the gavel again. It's a little gavel, but I think it can do great things. Okay. Okay. Listen. Listen, I'll say this. If you are trying to convince people of the gravity of a moment, maybe don't use such a humiliatingly shitty gavel. Because it just undercuts what you're trying to say. It would not be appropriate for a judge to conclude a death penalty case by saying, I hereby sentence you to hang by the neck until dead. May God have mercy upon your soul. <laughs> right? Solemn moment. Solemn moment for everybody. So, so, so why did Trump announced that he would pull out this week. Well, one clue may have come during his speech on Thursday when he actually talked about that happy celebration that you just saw, but seemed to see something sinister in it. The rest of the world applauded when we signed the Paris Agreement. They went wild. 
They were so happy. <laughs> For the simple reason that it put our country, the United States of America, which we all love, at a very, very big economic disadvantage. What are you talking about? <laughs> they were happy because they secured a landmark victory for the future of the planet, you fucking egomaniac. <laughs> the whole world is not secretly conspiring against the United States. The only thing the whole world is secretly conspiring to do is convince everyone that there are two Olsen twins. There is no way it is just one girl moving very quickly backwards and forwards. It's an optical illusion. The Olsen twins thing is a massive scam. And the whole world is in on it. And the only thing that I don't quite know yet is why. But we don't have time to get into it. The point is, if the agreement was a scheme to hurt American businesses, you know who that might be news to? Many American businesses. Because they were not just in favor of this agreement, they even made a last-ditch attempt to change Trump's mind. 25 companies, including Microsoft and Intel, have purchased a full-page ad in today's New York Times arguing the agreement generates jobs and economic growth. Well, come on. I mean, he was clearly never going to be convinced by an ad in the New York Times. How was he going to see it? If, if those companies really wanted to get his attention, they needed to talk KFC into putting out a full bucket ad, which he would read on the toilet while eating chicken, because that, at its core, is who our president is. But, but it turned out, it turned out that rather than listening to those companies, the president was getting advice from climate change skeptics like his EPA chief, Scott Pruitt, and human custody hearing, Steve Bannon. <laughs> although, although really, Trump's actions were in keeping with a long-held skepticism that he has concerning climate change. He has called it expensive bullshit and a hoax created by China. And he repeatedly brought that idea up on the campaign trail, often before losing track of what he was talking about and performing real-time word association. China isn't abiding by anything. They're buying all of our coal. We can't use coal anymore, essentially. They're buying our coal and they're using it. Now, when you talk about the planet, it's so big out there. We're here, they're there. It's like they're our next door neighbor, right? In terms of the universe. Miss Universe, by the way, made a great deal when I sold it. Oh, did I get rich? That was a great deal. Huh. You know, they broke my choppers on that. They said, he talks about illegal immigration. We're not going to put him on television. First of all, the Univision's being sued like crazy. You wouldn't believe it. And NBC, I made a great deal with them. Just like an amazing deal. Why can't you finish a thought? Why can't you finish a thought? That, is, that was 36 seconds, touching on at least seven different topics, including the non-phrase broke my choppers, and yet he did not conclude a single thought there. A goldfish would hear that speech and go, hey, 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 focus, get back to China. You were talking about China. What is wrong with this guy? Oh, God, I'm drowning. And look... When you combine Trump's lack of attention to detail with his deep-rooted paranoia, you get the wildly misleading reasons that he cited on Thursday for pulling out of Paris. For instance, he seemed to think the agreement committed America to shutting down coal-fired power plants. China will be allowed to build hundreds of additional coal plants. So we can't build the plants, but they can, according to this agreement. India will be allowed to double its coal production by 2020, think of it. India can double their coal production. We're supposed to get rid of ours. Okay. For the record, the agreement doesn't actually ban America from building coal plants. It doesn't even contain the word coal. 
Each, each country sets its own goals that it can meet however it wants. So that is wrong. That's just wrong. As is the fact that Trump said in his speech, America would continue to be the cleanest and most environmentally friendly country on Earth. Which is objectively untrue, because over history, the US has emitted by far more carbon than any other country, and we still emit more per person than almost any other nation. So that's like Mark Wahlberg saying he's going to continue to be the best dentist on the planet. <laughs> How? How are you going to do that? That's not what you are, Mark. Maybe you could decide to do that one day, but you're definitely not doing it now. Then there is Trump's concern over the Green Climate Fund, which finances projects in developing nations, helping them adapt to the impacts of climate change and reduce their emissions. Watch now as Trump describes that fund. The Green Fund would likely obligate the United States to commit potentially tens of billions of dollars, of which the United States has already handed over one billion dollars. Nobody else is even close. Okay. Okay. Now, to his credit, that is actually an impressive amount of misleading bullshit in very few words. In fact, here is everything that he just said. Let's break those words down. First, the Green Fund. It's not called the Green Fund. It's called the Green Climate Fund. I know, but still. <laughs> then would likely obligate the United States to commit money. There is no enforcement mechanism in the Paris Agreement. The US could just easily refuse to pay the bill, something Donald Trump has a lifetime of practice doing. As for the potentially tens of billions of dollars, no, we committed $3 billion. You can't just inflate three to potentially tens. I can't say that you have had potentially tens of failed marriages. I can only say you've had three, because you have. You have had three failed marriages, and yes, I'm very much including your current one. And, and finally, finally, nobody else is even close to paying more. That is just willfully misleading. While we have given the most so far in sheer dollars, we are one of the richest countries and one of the top emitters. And when you rank contributions as a fraction of GDP, we are 32nd. So Trump's description of the agreement is so flamboyantly deceptive, it would have been equally accurate for him to say compliance with the Paris Agreement would likely require all ducks to wear jean shorts <laughs> and that it would potentially cost each and every American citizen five fish and a dump truck full of hamsters. That would be as true as what he just said. And even, even when he tried to strike a reassuring tone, he got it wrong. So we're getting out. But we will start to negotiate and we will see if we can make a deal that's fair. And if we can, that's great. And if we can't, that's fine. Except no, it is not fine, is it? Because the leaders of Germany, France and Italy said in a statement, we firmly believe that the Paris Agreement cannot be renegotiated. And I would not test Europe's leaders when it comes to pulling out of a major international agreement. Britain is trying that bullshit right now with Brexit. And maybe you can send your demands to the same email address that Europe set up for that. It's lick.rnuts at gofuckyourselves.eu. So drop them a line. Drop them a line. They'll answer. But... But I have saved Trump's most ludicrous misunderstanding of the agreement for last. Because for a man who cites the agreement's strict, onerous and draconian terms, what he does not seem to comprehend is each nation sets its own goals, remember? And more importantly, the whole thing is fucking voluntary. 
The agreement as a whole is not legally binding and doesn't penalize nations who fail to meet their commitments. But it does include a process designed to shame them into compliance. It's true. The only penalty was shame. And unfortunately, this president is completely immune to the very concept of that. <laughs> If they even tried to shame him into compliance, he could just hold up this photo of him in a too short bathrobe <laughs> of what appears to be a child's bed and say, I posed for that. You cannot hurt me any more than I've already hurt myself. And at this point, you may be thinking, well, hold on. If it's all voluntary, then what is the harm in leaving? Well, the truth is, it's substantial. And let's start with just the harm to America's standing in the world alone. Because Trump's decision to leave this agreement has pissed off almost everyone. This morning, German Chancellor Angela Merkel called it extremely regrettable. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called it disheartening. And the Vatican went further, saying Mr. Trump's decision was a disaster for everyone. Wow. Think about that. We are getting shit-talked by the Vatican. And not by the Nazi Pope, the cool one. That's worse. That is like getting into a Twitter fight with the Dalai Lama. He, he doesn't snap often, but when he snaps, he snaps hard. And look, that reputational harm can have real costs for businesses abroad. One environmental negotiator who worked in the George W. Bush administration described this decision as the worst thing for brand America since Abu Ghraib. And that is rough. Because a bad association can stick with a brand for a long time. Just ask sexual assault pudding cups, uh, double murder car rentals, or Mr. Touchy's fresh and tasty pedo sandwiches. And, and then, then, there is the harm to American workers. The very people Trump is claiming to protect. Because most of the world now realizes that in order to reduce emissions, we need to shift to renewable forms of energy. And the more a government encourages that, the faster it happens, the quicker costs come down, and the more likely that that country is to be at the forefront of a whole new industry, creating countless jobs in the process. And you know who knows that? China. Or as Trump would say, China. <laughs> Tr Trump just handed a huge advantage to them. They've not only cancelled plans to build more than 100 coal-fired power plants, they're also dramatically increasing investment elsewhere. China plans to spend more than $360 billion on renewable energy by 2020, which it says will create at least 13 million new jobs. So you know what? In a way, Trump is fulfilling his campaign promise. He is creating millions of new jobs. He's just doing it for the wrong fucking country. <laughs> and if you want proof that the jobs of today and tomorrow are in renewable energy, France's new president, Emmanuel Macron, actually issued a call this week to America's workforce. To all scientists engineers, entrepreneurs, responsible citizens who were disappointed by the decision of the President of the United States, I want to say that they will find in France a second homeland. I call on them, come and work here with us. I guess what he's saying there is, be our guest, be our guest. Put ourselves to the test! Tie a napkin round you. You know what? We don't have time for this. Stop. We don't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lumiere. I'm sorry, Mrs. Potts. I'm sorry, Cogsworth. You gotta go. You gotta go. Quick, this is my fault. Get the fuck out of here, you little fuckers. Get out. Get out. But look, the real concern, the real concern 
The real, real concern here is that America's absence from the Paris Agreement could make other countries less inclined to meet their commitments. And remember, that could quickly become catastrophic. And that brings us to our final point. Given that we cannot afford just to wait four years to vote Trump out of office, what can be done now? Well, for starters, companies need to continue to step up. And to their credit, uh, some like uh, Walmart and Bank of America have set deadlines to power themselves completely with renewable energy. And nearly half of the Fortune 500 companies, including Philip Morris International, have pledged to reduce their carbon footprint in the coming years. That is right. This is a story where Walmart, Bank of America and Philip Morris end up being the good guys. Which just feels inherently surprising. It's like I just said, great news, everyone. Ebola, ISIS, and that dentist who shot Cecil the lion are going to save the planet for us. Thanks, guys. You're the best. You are the best. And look, look, it is not just companies stepping up. In the wake of Trump's decision, multiple governors have announced their intention to hold themselves to the Paris Agreement goals, as have many mayors, including, notably, the mayor of Pittsburgh. You know, the city that Trump cited as the reason he was pulling out of the agreement. Their mayor, Bill Peduto, was pretty clear about what he thinks about Trump's decision. Pittsburgh is the poster child of showing why the Paris Agreement is good economics for the United States. And what we did today sets us back decades. Promise you the future. Say he got a plan. When he took his daddy's fortune to make that boy a man. The truth is all around. It's plain enough to see. He wanna turn the clock back on you and me. So now we're traveling backwards. We're traveling backwards. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. On Thursday afternoon, President Donald Trump, who famously called climate change a hoax invented by China, announced that he is sticking with his campaign promise to withdraw the United States from the United Nations Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the landmark global agreement signed in 2015 by 192 nations to cut the carbon emissions that cause dangerous global warming. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. But begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or in really entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out. Trump justified the decision with wildly inaccurate claims and outright falsehoods, far too many to debunk here, misleading Americans on the treaty and its impacts on the United States. Withdrawal is a victory for the nationalist wing among Trump's White House advisors, and it's a victory for the fossil fuel industry's decades-long disinformation campaign to cast doubt on climate science. Renegotiating is a non-starter. The current agreement itself took 20 years, and France, Germany, and Italy immediately after the speech issued a joint statement declaring that the agreement cannot be renegotiated. 
The Paris exit has major long-term repercussions for our foreign relations, our global competitiveness, and, of course, pollution and the planet. Trump's formal exit will take at minimum four years, and the earliest it could take effect is November 4th, 2020, the day after the next presidential election. That makes the next presidential election even more important than it might have already been. An unusually broad spectrum of voices tried to convince Trump to stay in the global accord. Foreign leaders from Europe to the Pope to India to China warned Trump repeatedly that U.S. diplomatic relations will be severely damaged. One former White House official asked Politico, quote, how will global leaders ever trust the U.S. again to keep our word as a nation? Major corporations like Google, Apple, PG&E, Dow Chemical warned Trump that withdrawal will disadvantage America and its economy, hurt U.S. global competitiveness, and shut us out of global clean energy jobs. Even oil giants like Exxon and Chevron tried to convince Trump to stay in to, quote, keep a seat at the table. Seventy percent of Americans wanted the U.S. to remain in the agreement, and that includes a majority of Republican voters. Which is kind of amazing when you think about it and how disinformed they have been about climate over the years. In the long term, U.S. withdrawal is hugely consequential for the planet. We're already seeing accelerating impacts like rising seas and deadly extreme weather events. A new analysis by the Associated Press projects that a rogue United States could add up to a third of a degree Celsius of additional warming all by ourselves, meaning the world will have a far more difficult time avoiding dangerous and irreversible impacts of warming. Which, of course, is just a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, as Donald Trump said today, as, as if it was completely meaningless. Demonstrating he does not understand the science. The U.S. withdrawal could lead to backsliding among other nations, but leaders around the world affirmed their own country's commitments this week. The European Union and China on Friday will announce a new partnership on climate action, what the Financial Times called, quote, a stark realignment of forces. And states and cities are forging ahead with climate action, like California Governor Jerry Brown in an interview Wednesday with the L.A. Times. California will do everything it can to not only stay the course, but to build more support in other states, other provinces and with other countries. So Trump can undermine the Paris Agreement, but he can't kill it. To be clear, the Paris Agreement targets were not enough to avoid catastrophic warming impacts. It was only a start, a framework. Trump's move is a major setback, but a future U.S. president can and rejoin it. The Paris Agreement is a framework for transitioning to clean energy, and regardless of what Trump does, the market is moving away from fossil fuels. And moving away from Donald Trump. This decision ends up hurting the nation as much or more than it hurts the planet, in truth. Today we heard clips starting with the broadcast explaining Trump's announcement and offering some initial corrections. Democracy Now! presented a variety of reactions from around the world. Quirks and Quarks interviewed a scientist who cleared up the misinformation going around, claiming that there has been no warming over the last 18 years, specifically just 18. Jonathan Capehart spoke on his show Cape Up with Richard Branson about the economics of energy production. John Oliver on Last Week Tonight broke down the Paris Agreement and Trump point out. And finally, we just heard the Green News report highlighting many of the voices who spoke out against the U.S. pulling out of the agreement. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. 
Hi, this is Nick from California. I was just calling in to say that um, I listened to the Republican conservative minded solution to climate change. And I want to say that although my, did, uh, my skin did crawl with certain buzzwords and um, uh, certain justifications, such as appealing to favored mythology as a justification for why we need to take action, despite all that, if there's evidence to suggest that that would work the way that person uh, saying it would, I'm, that sounds great. I mean, I actually got excited about the possibility. I wouldn't be surprised if I heard that it really wouldn't work out the way they person did, but I, I'm excited that it potentially could and could get traction. And so I just wanted to say, you know, that I don't always feel that way. I mean, I, that just because something is advanced as a conservative solution that I automatically uh, discard it or something like that. Or so, in fairness, uh, I was one of the people who railed against Obama and actually took the Obama bumper sticker off my car due to the stuff that he was doing with drones and uh, with the Fourth Amendment regarding um, you know, internet privacy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I, I, while I am super partisan uh, and definitely succumb to the biases, I don't fall, uh, succumb to the, if my team does it, then it's, it's the best. I argue tire, tirelessly with liberals who were supporting Obama's increase in executive powers that we're now uh, lamenting about under Trump. All right, Jay, stay awesome. I appreciated the episode. Hi, Jay, this is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, and it's been a while. And uh, partly because I listened to the free speech episode, and, and while I agreed a lot with Dan Carlin and, and the the classical liberal, the, the Antifa was just sounded like a psychopath. Free speech is only free if you can say things that offend people. You don't need freedom of speech to say things everybody agrees with. These guys need to watch for concept creep. The Antifas are basically saying that because I disagree with you, I can make six degrees of separation between you and the Nazis. I'm going to jump straight to brown shirting you and silencing you and beating you up. You know, so they're jumping straight to violence when they're claiming these guys are some precursor to violence. Second, how do you know what a Nazi or a fascist is and why it is wrong without being exposed to the content of those ideas? It's because I explained to somebody what a Nazi believes that we know that being a Nazi is a bad thing. Free speech also isn't just the right to express ideas, but also the right to hear and evaluate ideas for yourself. Who do you trust to decide which ideas you get to hear and which are too dangerous for you to evaluate on your own? How do you know if new evidence would have proven them wrong, if, the, if they, those people have the power to suppress those ideas, who watches the Watchmen in this case? Uh, it's arguable that they took the wrong lesson from history and that history shows that the most dangerous movements are not always the ones with the worst ideas, but the ones that can end conversation and destroy the course correction it provides. Mao and Stalin killed far more people than Hitler, but mostly because dissent of any kind was as evil and stifled, not necessarily the rifles and the gulags, it's the suppression of the conversation to say, maybe instead of making steel in our backyards, we should be making food. People starve to death by the millions because of simple things like not being able to raise your hand and say, hey, wait a minute, I think we might be able to do this differently. So that's just something to keep in mind. My daughter goes to one of those schools that had one of these violent outbreaks, and she just wanted to hear what the guy had to say. She has the right to hear things and evaluate on her own. The idea that this, you know, people stifling free speech like this, it's not the government. It's insane. It's like lynching. It's basically, it's the same as lynching. You're saying, I'm going to get rid of your right to speak 
and your right to hear because I have deemed that you are not worthy to make either of those decisions. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I hope that you reconsider your respect for this Antifa psychopath because he's claiming that you don't have the right to say things and you don't have the right to hear things. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today, in light of this being another climate episode, I am reminded of a series of thoughts I was having after the the last, you know, the episode that you will probably recall, the conservative solution to climate change episode. It was, it was about climate change, but it was all about a conservative policy to address climate change. And in that episode, there were a lot of conservatives themselves who believe in climate change and want to implement policies to solve it. But as they were talking more than once, there was sort of an attempt to explain conservative thinking towards climate change. And I don't know if they would say that they were defending the thinking uh, towards climate change, but at the very least trying to explain it. They were very thoughtful people trying to give an honest reasoning about their own kin, <laughs> you know, their compatriots, their fellow conservatives. And, you know, there was the former uh, Republican congressman who started his TED Talk by saying that he came into con Congress not believing in climate change because all he knew about it was that if Al Gore was for it, then he was against it. And then he goes on and and he, he explains with an analogy. I'm going to replay just this tiny clip for you. He explains with an analogy why he thinks conservatives are so opposed to climate change legislation. And then after that, I'm going to play a clip from uh, an evangelical pastor who does his best to explain the thinking of his fellow evangelicals so that we can better understand them. So let's hear those two clips first. We really think that most of the time it's solution aversion. If I tell you, Jeff, here's the plan of surgery for that back problem you're having, I hope you don't have one. But anyway, if, if there were, um, first, we're going to take off your head um, when you got your head off, we work on your spine, then we put your head back on. You're going to say to me, thanks, doc. I'm feeling a lot better. I don't have a back problem because the solution is nuts. You're not going to take my head off. What conservatives have heard is a big government that wants to run their lives, uh, headquartered at the UN, maybe. Um, and they just think this is nuts. We're not doing that. And many evangelicals, in fact, most evangelicals have a conservative ideological view. They're Republicans, maybe even more conservative than that. And so when they heard the word climate change, it was always associated with things like the former Vice President Al Gore about big government, whether it was the EPA or cap and trade. So those are the first two clips, but I have one more for you. The difference with this one is it's a secondhand story. The first two were from the mouths of conservatives. This one is a progressive host, Sam Cedar telling the story about an interaction he had with a 
Republican. Uh, so th- he's telling a story about Christine Todd Whitman. That name sounded familiar to me, but I had to go look it up to be sure. So she's a Republican. She was the uh, governor of New Jersey, and she was also the administrator of the EPA during the George W. Bush administration for just a couple of years. So that's who this story is about. I remember once sitting on a panel on uh, some cable show with uh, Christine Todd Whitman, who made the point, and this was, you know, three or four years ago, so the story's always changing a little bit, but at that time, the popular refrain was that, well, you know, liberals are so pushy about it and so self-righteous about it that it um, forces Republicans to act irrational about it. So those are the three clips, and the connection between all three may be obvious to some, but I just want to lay it out to be sure. And the first thing to remember, though, is that all three of these statements are coming from conservatives. No one is making fun of conservatives. No one is attacking conservatives. No one is calling conservatives dumb. Nothing like that. As far as I can tell, these three people are trying to be genuine and thoughtful and give an honest assessment of the thought process of conservatives in a loving and compassionate way. So no one's being attacked. But the through line between all three of these statements is that conservatives, by their analysis, are not thinking for themselves. They are not looking at a situation and judging it for themselves and deciding how to react. All three of these people, in their analysis, are concluding that conservatives come to their opinion based entirely or almost entirely on a reaction to how liberals perceive this issue. And I find that, I mean, it's troubling, it's baffling. Frankly, if I were a conservative, I would find it embarrassing. How is it that all three of these people coming from different perspectives are concluding the same thing that a large swath of the conservative community are coming to their conclusions not based on any evidence other than how my enemy perceives this issue. Again, if Al Gore is for it, then I'm against it. If liberals think it's really important, then I must be against it. If they're self-righteous about it, well, then I'm going to be self-righteous about denying it. So that is the troubling through line between all of these. And I just want to dive a little deeper on one of them. Uh, longtime listeners of this show will know that I am a big fan of well-crafted analogies. All analogies are imperfect, that is inevitable, but some are much better than others. I'm a fan of the good ones, so when I hear a bad one, I, I can't help but uh, <laughs> but discuss it and correct it. So Bob Inglis, he's the former Republican congressman, and his analogy for explaining why conservatives are opposed to climate change relates to going to a doctor when you have a problem with your back. He says, you go to the doctor, you got a problem with your back, and the doctor says, great, we'll take off your head, we'll fix your back, we'll put your head back on, you'll be all set. And he explains, if a doctor said that to you, you'd say, hey, hey buddy, actually, it turns out my back's doing just fine, I'm going to get out of here. And that's the end of his analogy. But think about that. If you have a problem with your back, and you go see a quack doctor who wants to take your head off to fix your back, you're going to lie to that doctor so that you can back out quietly and remove yourself from that situation and go find a second opinion. Go find another way to fix your back. 
If the doctor says you have to take your head off to fix your back, you're not going to then convince yourself literally for the rest of your life that you don't actually have a back problem. You're not going to see all of the evidence and all the pain in your back indicating that you have a back problem. You're not going to have scientists doing scientific studies on you for the rest of your life. 97% of whom conclude that you do, in fact, have a back problem and should have it fixed, you're not going to conclude, as he indicated, that you don't have a back problem. You're going to conclude that you have a back problem. You definitely need to do something about it, and you need to find someone who is going to propose a solution that is better than removing your head. So the thing is, it's a terrible analogy, but it might also be correct. It doesn't follow logically but it might accurately describe the thought process of conservatives. Maybe if a conservative, as in his analogy, went to a doctor with a back problem and they said, let's remove your head, that person would never try to fix their back problem again for the rest of their life. It's a troubling thought. I hope it's not the case. But when it comes to climate change, that really does seem to be the way it worked out. And so I think that Sam Cedar's conclusion after he told that little story about Christine Todd Whitman... It's applicable to the story he told, but I think it's applicable to all three of these. If you find yourself and you're a grown-up and you're making that argument uh, and you're making it on behalf of other grown-ups, I think you should be pretty embarrassed uh, for yourself and those uh, other grown-ups. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. And before I go, another quick reminder that Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. And for every pair of socks you buy, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. So to get your pair or more, visit bombas.com slash left right now, and you'll get an additional 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash left. And also, thanks to Dollar Shave Club for supporting today's episode. Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice to get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only 5 bucks with free shipping by going to dollarshaveclub.com best. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's dollarshaveclub.com best. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Maybe start by telling podcast newbies out there that there is an easy-to-use, best-of-the-left smartphone app to get them started. Also, please keep leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher to help others find the show. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used for this and every episode, all that information can always be found on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen See past our own sad stories and one.